Well, you can open up your Bibles to the book of First Corinthians, and this morning we are going to be looking at how to avoid the peril of artificial church growth. How does a ministry ensure that Christ is building a church, not man? And to begin to unpack this idea, I want to talk about the idea of contextualization in ministry. Now, to contextualize is referring to the various ways that we adapt or adjust our ministry depending on the context we are in. And to be sure, some degree of contextualization is necessary and unavoidable in gospel ministry. For instance, if you're holding a Bible in your hand that is anything other than Greek or Hebrew, you have benefited from an appropriate form of contextualization. That is a biblically responsible pursuit for clarity. Another form of an appropriate adjustment we should make in ministry would be the principle of making uh, personal sacrifices, giving up things that we might be free to do in Christ in order to remove unnecessary distraction, offense, or confusion. For example, turn over to 1 Corinthians 9, just as we begin to get our bearings with this idea. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's explaining to the Corinthian church why he makes some adjustments in his ministry depending on the context he's in, uh, depending on who he's ministering to. Particularly, the reason he's bringing it up in this context is he's explaining to the Corinthians, here's why I didn't want or accept financial support from you when I initially came into Corinth. Pick it up in verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Now the banner over this entire section is one of servanthood. I have made myself a slave, a servant to all. Paul is not teaching a principle here that anything goes in the name of ministry as long as it, quote, works. Rather, he's talking about the principle of servanthood in ministry. What godly and sacrificial flexibility looks like in ministry life. And and now he gives several expressions of that very principle. Verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. Now here he's referring to the ethnic distinctives of the Jewish people, the customs, even the language of the Jewish people. For example, if, he, if they spoke Hebrew, he would speak Hebrew. He had a sacrificial flexibility. Next in verse 20, To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Now this group is referring more to the religious distinctives of Judaism, like circumcision, dietary laws, observing days of special significance, So if he knew the people he was ministering to abstained from pork, he abstained. If they observed a certain feast, he would observe it with them. Verse 21, to those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. When he mentions this group as being without the law, he's not referring so much to their behavior as to their status. As in Gentiles, they were not given the law like the Israelites were. 
So just as he had the freedom to flex to Jewish customs and their relationship with the Mosaic law, he had the same freedom to flex to the Gentile customs and their lack of relationship to the law. But he's very careful not to give any confusion or his adversaries any opportunity here to say, you see, Paul's anti-law because he says basically that I am free from Mosaic jurisdiction. I'm not free from the law of God the law of Christ, I'm free from Mosaic jurisdiction. And then one final group, and this group is the one that particularly relates to the Corinthians, verse 22, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Now, it is important to note that he's talking about an evangelism context here. And therefore, he's not referring to a believer with a weak conscience, Rather, he's talking about purposely becoming a person of low social status, social insignificance to minister to people in that class. Purposely choosing to be weak in the eyes of human wisdom, in the eyes of the world. For example, working with his own hands, not accepting pay when he came in and preached the gospel. And that distinguished him from the professional orators of the day, as we're going to see in a few minutes. And then in the middle of verse 2, he summarizes the principle again. I've become all things to all men so that I might by all means save some. Now, even though this verse is used to defend the practice that we have to become like the world in order to reach the world, It certainly doesn't mean that in the context. It can't mean anything goes in the name of ministry just as long as it works. That's not the idea here. The point is, don't let your Christian freedom, your Christian liberty, hinder anyone from hearing the truth. He's talking about sacrificial flexibility in ministry, not compromising morally to reach people. So these are all examples of appropriate contextualization, ways that the Apostle Paul and likewise the church can adjust, adapt ministry depending on the context it is in. But what often happens today when the church contextualizes and it uses that language, it's more the idea that we need to adjust our ministry, even our message, so that the culture will find it more appealing, more credible, even in some cases less foolish less offensive. Today, it's the idea that we can do ministry, we can evangelize, we can preach, we can do those things while retaining an orthodox gospel, but at the same time, we can find a way to take the edge off a little bit, remove some of the foolishness in it. And it is this kind of contextualizing that is vulnerable to artificially building a church, manufacturing church growth. And it has a very dangerous presupposition behind it, and and here it is. The truth, as revealed in the scriptures, is not sufficient to reach people. Therefore, it's the responsibility of the church to add something to it in order to make it a little more palatable, a little more appealing, a little more credible in the eyes of the unbelieving world. Now, I want to give you a few examples of what this looks like so you can understand how this shows up today before we get to our our passage for this morning. In April of 2019, a prominent uh, female author and speaker featured often on the Gospel Coalition website 
she published an article entitled, It's Time to Go on the Offensive. And in the article, she was calling the church to adopt a more offensive approach to reaching the culture. And here are a few examples of how she developed her argument. She writes this in the article. And we have blindly stepped out into cultural traffic rather than taking our lead from those with the credibility to speak. Later, she makes a similar statement. Likewise, when it comes to other areas of cultural engagement, we need to let our most credible voices speak. So you can see the burden she has, the argument she's developing is the church, as it interacts with the culture, has the wrong people speaking, not the people with the credibility. The culture doesn't give them credibility. We've got to put the right people in front of the culture. And I can resonate with that sentiment. Let's put our most credible voices out there. I would agree that many in the church who are speaking, who have that broad reach online, aren't the ones who should be speaking. But listen to how she attempts to solve this problem. Here's the answer of who those credible voices are. Quote, in a world, notice that language, in a world where Christians are seen as homophobic bigots, We need to get behind the biblically faithful, same-sex attracted Christians that God has raised up to speak for and to his church. In a world where Christianity is dismissed as a white man's religion, we need to get behind biblically faithful men and women of color. And in a world where Christianity is thought to denigrate women, we need to get behind biblically faithful, rhetorically gifted women. So you see the assumption she's making here is if you want to reach those living in a homosexual lifestyle, you need a Christian who's attracted to those very things, who has some experience with that temptation in order to reach them. The world says you can't just come with your Bible and say this is what God says about your actions. No, give us someone who lives in our world and the world of the church. Sort of serves as a bridge. The assumption is it's, it's necessary, it's even appropriate to allow the unbelieving, ungodly culture to dictate who gets to speak and how they get to say it. Now, she continues with a prime example of what I like to call conjunction theology. Conjunction theology, that's where the first part of your statement is the truth to satisfy your critics, and then you put that word but in there to indicate what you really believe. Here's what she says. Truth is truth, whoever's voicing it. Stop right there. Exactly right. Truth is truth, whoever is voicing it, but, conjunction theology, God has raised up leaders whose voices can be heard. And what she means is particular leaders, particular voices who have experienced the same things that the culture is battling, and we have to follow their, their lead. She's quoted in another interview as saying this, but in an age, notice again, in an age where who you are determines what you have the right to say, we need to stop fielding straight white men. Yes, that's the spirit of the age. That is worldly philosophy. That is exactly where credibility comes from in the culture. Who you are and what you have experienced determines... What you have a right to say even determines the amount of truth you can know. 
And so we are told we have to allow the world to set the agenda for how it will be reached. That is the dangerous error of contextualization. We're not going to change the message. The gospel's the gospel, but we're going to let the culture determine how we say it and who gets to say it. Because if we don't, we're going to be marginalized. We're not going to be effective. We're not going to have influence, and we're going to be called all those nasty names, bigots, racists, patriarchal. So that's an example of how it shows up in a philosophy of ministry and evangelism discussions. But long before this whole idea of who you are and what you've experienced determines what right you have to speak the truth, long before that idea came into our culture, contextualization was alive and well in the church. There are evidences of it all over the place today. Several mindsets or ministry practices that come to mind. Again, I just want to give you a few examples so you have the right categories in place before we look at our passage. What about this one? The idea that there should be different kinds of local churches for different kinds of people. For example, a local church for the unchurched, a local church for young people, a local church for seasoned saints, a local church for families, a local church for the oppressed, a local church for new believers, one over here for mature believers, a local church for those with a low IQ and those with a high IQ. Also under this one, a ministry that has two services but markets one as a contemporary service but the other one as a traditional service. The pulpit is removed for the contemporary service and the pastor comes out in a hooded sweatshirt and jeans with holes in them. He preaches a much more condensed sermon out of the New Living Translation to avoid using any archaic language. And this is an attempt to be more relatable and credible in the eyes of the young people. After all, if he just gets up there behind a pulpit in a suit and preaches the Word of God, that's not going to work, is the assumption. But then after the contemporary service, he goes backstage and gets ready for the traditional service. He changes into the suit. The pulpit is put back. Traditional hymns are sung. He gets out his King James Version, and now he preaches to relate to a completely different crowd. The idea is, we'll keep the message the same. But we'll package it. We'll add a little human methodology to make it more credible to certain subsections. A second example of adding human methodology to gospel ministry today. This one's similar as the first. When the philosophy of ministry for the youth, the young adults of the church, is different than the philosophy of ministry for the rest of the church. In other words, when a church operates under the assumption that young people have to be reached differently than the rest of the church. The youth ministry of any particular church is always a good indicator of where they are on this dangerous slope of contextualization. Any adult in here should be able to go in and listen to Pastor Nick and be edified. And you can. A third example, making church services more casual, more relaxed, more informal, so that the unchurched or the seekers wouldn't feel threatened, wouldn't feel uncomfortable by a religious environment. This is the air of thinking, well, we can make the message, the ministry, a little less foolish in the eyes of the unbelieving and just warm them up to the gospel. You see, it's not as formal and threatening and scary as you might think. We, we found a way to take the edge off 
A fourth example, this is a fun one. You wish pastor so-and-so would have preached on the day you brought your friend or family member. Or you wish pastor so-and-so wouldn't have preached on that topic or that text when you brought your friend or family member. What's going wrong in our thinking when we entertain that idea? Well, we're not going to admit it in those terms, but we are thinking as though the power or lack thereof is in the man, the preacher, not the truth. Our mindset reveals the truth isn't sufficient to reach my friend or family member. It needs to be packaged a certain way by a certain individual. A fifth example. The belief that Christians have no right to preach the gospel unless they first gained a hearing in the eyes of the culture. In other words, the church needs to stop preaching so much and do more outreach, but the idea of outreach is not evangelism. It is community service and social improvement projects, and it's assumed that that form of outreach in the community will cause unbelievers in our society to come to this conclusion. You see, the church isn't worthless. It actually adds something beneficial, so maybe we'll listen to what they have to say now. Also, under this same idea, the belief that you have to build a relationship with someone for years before you can ever call them to repentance and faith in Christ. A sixth example, similar to the other ones, the belief that I'm not going to bring an unchurched family member or friend to an expository ministry because they'll never understand the preaching. Of course they won't, unless God draws them and opens their eyes. So these are all examples of believing that the truth isn't sufficient. It needs, it needs our help. It needs some human help to help it along. Give it a little more power. Massive problem today in evangelicalism, and it was a massive problem in ancient Corinth as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul spends almost two entire chapters exposing this error. And if I could summarize his main point in the opening two chapters, it would be this. The ministry of the gospel and the message of the gospel are inherently linked. In other words, the message determines the method. One flows from the other. And if you add human wisdom to either one, you lose the gospel. We're going to eventually be looking at the opening verses of chapter 2, but let's back up and work our way there so you can see this in the flow of Paul's argument. This idea of contextualization, adding human wisdom, was introduced by Paul back in chapter 1, verse 17. Notice what he says. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And there he is. He's referring there in verse 17 to the the error of contextualization. He says, if I came into Corinth and I added some cleverness of speech to my gospel presentation, if I spoke in a manner that would put me on the same level of these professional uh, orators that you guys admire so much in Corinth, if I did that, I'd ruin the gospel. And here's a very important part to take note of, even if my message was faithful, even if my content was orthodox. Look at what he says there in the middle of verse 17, to preach the gospel. Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with the content. His statement of faith would have been right on. 
I could preach the gospel in such a way that the cross of Christ would be made void. I could undermine the very power of the message. After verse 17, he launches for the rest of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 and deals with this issue. In verses 18 to 25, he explains, here's why it doesn't work. Here's why contextualization doesn't work. His answer is pretty simple. The gospel is foolish to those who are perishing. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Skip down to verse 22. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. There's what the unbelieving world wants. There they are setting the agenda. You've got to reach us this way. This is what we have to have. You have to appeal to what we desire and demand before we'll listen to your message. How does Paul respond to that? Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. We preach something that doesn't make sense in the realm of man's natural way of thinking. You can't make it less, a fool, less offensive, less foolish. As soon as it doesn't become foolish, you've either messed with it or they got saved. And then he illustrates this very point in, in very humbling fashion, we would add, in the Corinthians themselves. Notice verses 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brethren. <laughs> you want proof of this? Consider your calling. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why does he do it this way? So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Like all churches, the church in Corinth was made up of unimpressive, weak, fairly insignificant people in the world. And this is evidence of the principle he's teaching. How God saves matches who God saves. And he just says, Corinthians, you're the proof. Look at your calling. That leads us to our passage then for this morning in the first five verses of chapter 2. And he is explaining, here's why I came into Corinth and ministered the way I did. It was consistent with these very principles. What we see in these verses is the answer to this question. How do you do ministry without ruining the gospel? Or in the language of the sermon title, how do you avoid the peril of artificial church growth? How do we know if we are building the church or if Christ is building the church? How do we know if we are drawing people to the ministry through our own methods or if Christ is drawing people to the ministry through the truth? I think an honest answer in evangelicalism today would be this. We don't need to worry about that. All that matters is people are being reached. People are coming. Look at all the people that are attending. Why would you have a problem with that? You can't argue with our fruit. Well, the problem is numbers and warm bodies and seats don't mean anything in God's economy. I can't improve on Martin Luther's words. Wherever God builds his church, the devil builds a chapel next door and the chapel is always bigger. 
How do you know if you're building the devil's chapel or God's church? Paul answers these questions in the passage before us. By way of structure, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5 is divided up grammatically into two sections. You may have these two sections represented with the phrase, and I. You can see that in verse 1, and I, and beginning in verse 3, and I. So following that structure, two evidences that Christ, not man, is building a church. Two evidences that Christ, not man, is building a church. The first evidence is this. It turns away from human methodology while teaching the truth. It turns away from human methodology while teaching the truth. In verse one, in verse one we see Paul turning away from human methodology. Notice, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Now, when he uses that language, superiority of speech or of wisdom, he's drawing a contrast between himself and the sophists of ancient Corinth. Sophists were professional lecturers, orators, teachers. They would travel city to city, taking their show on the road, gaining influence, making money, creating a following. They were trained and advanced in rhetoric, the, the effective and persuasive use of language. Their profession involved the cultivated skill of convincing an audience, winning an audience over to their viewpoint. In fact, a sophist in Corinth was measured by the degree to which his audience was persuaded. The goal was to get the desired response. It was his job to evoke a favorable response to his message. The power, therefore, was in the speaker. He had the ability to change minds, change opinions, and win the audience over to his viewpoint. And this was accomplished with a confident demeanor, a brilliant use of language that could keep an audience on the edge of their seat and win them over with irrefutable arguments to his viewpoint. It's helpful to note the contrast between this ancient professional sophist and a herald. A herald is the New Testament word group for a preacher in preaching. And what is the difference between a herald and a sophist? Well, the sophist is driven by results. A herald is driven by a faithful representation of the message. The sophist was responsible for the response of the audience. The herald was responsible to be clear with the message. The sophist left the audience with an impression of his own brilliance, his own greatness. The herald was quickly forgotten and left the audience with the impression of the king's supremacy, the king's greatness. I want to turn our attention again to that author and speaker I mentioned earlier just to demonstrate that this, the spirit of ancient sophism in Corinth is unfortunately alive and well today in the church. On her personal website, she offers a service to church leaders on effective public speaking. Here's a few excerpts from her website. She writes this. Effective public speaking is both an art and a science. Peer-reviewed research confirms things orators have known for millennia. What are those things? For example, metaphors unlock persuasion. So you want to persuade people over to your viewpoint? Use a lot of metaphors. 
She continues, many leaders have good instincts about how to connect, but few are equipped with all the principles that are known to keep people's attention, change their minds, and activate their memory. That is the ancient sophist in modern language. I'm offering a service to preachers. I can equip you with principles to change your audience's mind. In other words, the ability and power to get the response is where? It's in the speaker, the speaker's ability. With all that as the backdrop, notice now what Paul is saying again and how remarkable this is in verse 1. When I came into Corinth, I wanted to distinguish myself from the sophists. I didn't come like a professional. I purposely came as one who would appear inferior to them. I didn't come promoting my own gifts, my own intellect. I didn't come using speech and rhetoric that would put me in the same class as those guys. When he's came, he's basically saying, when I came, I did not contextualize. Paul had ministered in Greek culture enough to know exactly what would appeal to the Corinthians. And so he reminds them here, I knew what you would appreciate. I knew what you would value. I knew what would give the gospel the best chance at a favorable response. We could even put it in this language for modern day. I knew exactly how I could get the maximum number of professions of faith. And I purposely avoided it. That is radically antithetical to how church leaders operate today. Many church leaders today study the culture in order to find out what to do in their ministry. Paul observed the culture in order to find out what not to do. Think about how strange that sounds to us. A church leader, imagine a church planter coming into an area for the first time and he sends out a community survey, which includes unbelievers and even professing believers in various ministries in the area. And the survey is designed to find out what will bring you to church and what will keep you in church. And imagine that church leader then gathering the data from that survey, finding out what they're all about, identifying a few common denominators in all of the answers, and then making sure he completely avoids all of it. That his philosophy of ministry doesn't cater to any of those things. Doesn't that sound almost unloving, insensitive to us today? But I think that just demonstrates how far we've drifted from these principles Notice again here in verse 1, very importantly, nothing wrong with Paul's content, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. If I came and I added some of this speech the way the, the, way the orators did and I proclaimed the testimony of God, nothing wrong with the content. He said, I can have an orthodox doctrine, but it'd be a heretical philosophy of ministry. One of the key differences between Paul and the professional orators is he understood the response of the audience is not in my power. I can't package the truth in a certain way to make it more palatable. I can't do ministry in a way to make it more credible, to take the edge off. So Paul turned away from human methodology. He purposely avoided what would give him human credibility in the cultures, in the culture there. What did he do instead? He clearly taught the truth. Notice verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What's the nothing there? It's the methods in verse 1. 
What he's saying here is this. My message is my method. Truth is my method. And with these words here in verse 2, we might get the impression Paul's saying that the entire time he was in Corinth, he only talked about the death of Christ, that he never taught anything beyond the gospel message, but that's not the case. That's not what he's saying here. In Acts 18.11, Paul settled in Corinth for 18 months, and it says, teaching the word of God to them. This is not a statement indicating that once the church was formed, once people came to faith, that he never moved beyond the gospel. I think the key here is understanding in verse 2, Paul's talking about when he initially came to them. When I came, I did not come in this way. I didn't come when I initially came to minister to you Corinthians. I didn't come doing these things. See, the Corinthian culture was in many ways similar to the American culture. Both will accept, for the most part, the palatable parts of the Christian message, the palatable parts of the Bible. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others what you wish they would do unto you. The abundant and blessed spiritual life in Christ, peace and joy and victory in Christ, the culture tolerates those even accepts them, appreciates them, as long as they're in isolation from the rest of Scripture. So notice what Paul says again. I determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When I came initially into Corinth, I kept emphasizing the unpalatable truth. The crucified Messiah, that was my singular focus. Why'd you camp out there, Paul? Why would that be your focus? Well, he's already told us in the same letter. Look back at 117 again. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. Back to 2 2. I didn't know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You just see that theme running throughout chapters 1 and 2. Many moral principles found in Scripture overlap and have some degree of continuity with man's fallenness. What I mean by that is, Love your neighbor as yourself. That, that's a tenant in many false religions. Many secular people appreciate that principle. Love your neighbor as yourself. But fallen man has no category for the cross. It's the cross that's foolishness. It is the cross that is the stumbling block. So Paul came into town and said, I knew nothing except the cross. Because until you no longer view that as foolishness, there's nothing else to talk about. Loving your neighbor as yourself, you'll just turn, that into, turn it into a way to earn heaven, earn God's favor. I think a modern example of this idea is considering men like Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro. Neither of them are Christians, but both of them support Christians and the church. Both of them accept the morality of Scripture. They appreciate and benefit the, the, uh, they appreciate the benefit of biblical principles to society. They defend and debate them but they won't worship a crucified Savior. 
For an unbelieving Jew like Ben Shapiro, it's a stumbling block. No, our Messiah comes in power, victory, and deliverance, not weakness. He's not going to be put to death by the very Gentiles he's supposed to deliver us from. That can't happen. And for Gentiles, a crucified Messiah, who needs that? It doesn't make any sense. That's foolishness. So Paul says to the Corinthians, I camped out on that very issue, the unpalatable truth. Because if you embrace the message of the cross, that'll be evidence that you've experienced the new birth. That'll be evidence that God's power accompanied the message. I think this is often the answer to the confusion that we might face in trying to figure out what's off about a particular ministry. You've probably been part of a ministry at some point or maybe even trying to evaluate a particular ministry for a friend or family member and you're struggling to put your finger on what it is that's off. You're convinced there's a significant problem but you're confused because well, the statement of faith, it's right on. It looks just like ours. And yeah, I listen to the sermons and it's okay. It's not exposition as we might define it, it but it's biblical. His Bible's open. He's not saying anything wrong, not saying anything heretical. But then you're looking at the church and the people aren't being sanctified. They have no discernment. They're, they're tossed to and fro by every new strange doctrine that comes into the church. They just embrace it and run with it. And there's no unity over doctrine in the, in the body. And oftentimes they argue with what the word of God clearly teaches. And I would suggest that what we're discerning in those instances is often this idea right here. The entire ministry is contaminated with human wisdom and human methodology and the air isn't coming out so much in the content but all the various ways that the ministry caters to the demands of the culture and attempts to make up for a lack in the truth. It often looks like avoiding the unpalatable aspects of the truth. Maybe it just ignores the controversial issues. But more often, it's just unclear when it talks about them. There's so many qualifiers and generalities that no one can really tell what side they're on. In fact, they're able to satisfy both sides because they don't really say anything. And furthermore, the preaching is not definitive. It's not precise. It's true as far as it goes, but it's so general and vague, it doesn't really confront anything in man's fallenness. I think what we're discerning in those cases is a church that's being built by man not Christ. As I've heard it put, the, the ministry has lost the gospel without denying a single doctrine. Well, this is the first evidence that Christ, not man, is building the church. It turns away from human methodology and teaches the truth clearly, and we could add especially the unpalatable truths. That brings us to the second evidence that Christ, not man, is building a church. It trembles at the task while trusting in the Spirit's work. It trembles at the task while trusting in the Spirit's work. This is verses 3 to 5. Notice verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. What's, the, what, what's that in there for? That's the exact opposite of a professional order of the day. They, they would come in and present themselves full of confidence and pride in one's ability and in their ability to use their brilliant rhetoric to change the audience over to their viewpoint. 
For them, it was a game, it was entertainment, it was a presentation of self. For Paul, it was a presentation of Christ. So he came not full of confidence or swagger, but humility as he recognized his own inadequacy. He came into town with an unpopular method, an unpopular message. On top of that, he was unimpressive in his presence. Bodily ailment, looked weak. And that's why he can say, I was with you in weakness. From the standpoint of human wisdom, you're not going to look at me and say, that's an impressive looking guy. But not only weakness, also fear and trembling. When that phrase is used in other passages, it's talking about a mental agony, a mental burden over a very important issue. Not sinful anxiety, but a, what we would call a holy mental burden on account of the urgency or importance of something. That's what I think he's communicating here. He's not saying fearful of danger, fearful of persecution, though that was true in Corinth. I think he's saying fearful of the task, fearful that I would rely on myself, fearful of my, that I would trust in my own abilities, fearful that I would minister in such a way that would result in an artificial conversion, someone trusting in me rather than Christ. You know, this, this manner here is absent in any ministry that adds human methodology to the gospel. Why? They love taking credit. Look at how many people we've reached. Look, we found a way to do church that we can attract this particular group. Look how many people are coming. And it puffs them up with their artificial numbers. They're not concerned at all whether they are drawing people or if God is drawing people. Not for Paul. He trembled. Paul trembled at the task. And he trusted in the Spirit's work. Notice verse 4. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. What's he talking about there? The power here is the power of the message to convert. The power of the message to lead to salvation. The power of the Spirit of God accompanying a weak message or a seemingly weak message anyway. Look back at chapter 1, verse 18 again. We see this idea of power. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 24, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Even notice the next verse in our section, chapter 2, verse 5 so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. What's he referring to? What's he referring to there in verse 4 when he says the demonstration of the Spirit and of power? He's referring to their conversion, which only has a supernatural explanation when you minister the way Paul did. The conversion of the Corinthians, why is that a demonstration of power and of the Spirit? Because when a culture is all about a a speaker's self-confidence, brilliant rhetoric, but a gospel minister comes into town weak, unimpressive, and proclaims a weak, unimpressive message that's at odds with human wisdom, and people are radically transformed, how do you explain that apart from the Spirit of God? For a similar idea, look over at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. We read this in the scripture reading earlier. But Paul uses an almost identical phrase here, and he uses it to demonstrate the same thing. 
First Thess 1, verse 2, <clears throat> we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. How did Paul know that? How does he know you guys are among the elect? I know God chose you. Verse 5, this is how he knows. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Same language as in our passage. And with full conviction. How do I know God chose you? Because when we preached, God accompanied that human proclamation of the gospel with powerful transformation. How did he know that? Verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The gospel came to you, Thessalonians, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? It transformed your life. You turned from idolatry. You're serving the Lord. You became an example to the other churches. Paul tells the Corinthians the same thing. When I came into town, I purposely avoided what would make sense to you, what would give the gospel more credibility in your eyes because if any of you believed, I wanted it to be the power of God, the obvious demonstration of the power of God, not my ingenuity. And you can see what he was motivated by in verse 5, so that your faith, back to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So we're back now to that question that we opened with. How do you avoid the peril of artificial church growth? How, how do you know if Christ is building a church or if man is building a church? You can see both options represented here in verse 5. If you contextualize in ministry, if you think you have to help the truth along by adding some human wisdom to it, your faith, you're, you're, it's going to result in faith in the wisdom of men. How would you ever know if you were drawn to Christ by man's ingenuity, by man's ability to manipulate a response, or by the truth? How would you know that? See, Paul knew that anyone can be persuaded. Men can persuade other men to the truth of Christianity. That's a whole branch of apologetics called evidential apologetics. That's what the whole thing is built on. We can present man with enough evidence and irrefutable arguments to back him into a corner so the only option is, oh yeah, I guess that's true. That's not conversion. Any man can do that. We have the power to get others to agree, to agree in that sense with the truth. But no one has the power to cause others to be born again. No one has the power to cause someone who once viewed the cross as foolishness to now view it as the wisdom of God and the power of God. No man can do that. And a ministry that Christ is building, not man, is producing supernatural fruit. That's what Paul said in verse 4. In demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It is producing lives that can only be explained by the Spirit of God as opposed to human fruit, mere human fruit. What is that? 
People who come to church who previously didn't, that's human fruit. People who now serve at church who previously didn't, people who now profess faith who previously didn't. And that's as far as it goes. Ian Murray in his excellent book, Evangelicalism Divided, said this, Evangelicals, while commonly retaining the same set of beliefs, there it is, we all agree, we all have the same statement of faith, we have been tempted to seek success in ways in which the New Testament identifies as worldliness. It is a man-centered way of thinking. Now listen to what he says here. It proposes objectives which demand no radical breach with man's fallen nature. It judges the importance of things by the present and material results. Look at how many people we have. It weights success by numbers. It covets human esteem and wants no unpopularity. It knows no truth for which is worth suffering. It declines to be a fool for Christ's sake. How do we know if we're, we are building the church or if Christ is building the church? We're going to purposely turn away from human methodology while clearly teaching the truth, the full counsel of God, and we're going to tremble at the task while trusting in the Spirit's work. We're not going to measure success or whether or not someone is reached by the standards of the world, but by what Scripture says a transformed life looks like. That is how to know if Christ is building a church.